we are back. We are here. We are the weird. Oh, I just realized that sounds like that's that song. We are the weird. We are the podcast. We bring you tales of ghosts and things that just went missing. There are times that I feel really bad when Riley tells me that I'm not very good. Well, we tried. Now, and I should take that back because last week you were very kind to me. It was 20 plus years in the making, but you finally said some kind things to me. What? Did you had a Tom Selleck chest? I didn't say that was... That I had a Tom Selleck chest of... But that doesn't mean... That's not a good thing. It's just an observation. I thought you were saying that, like, he is the epitome of cool. No, because he's like a gun person, right? He fell from favor. If you're not carrying a gun, you're not living the full life you could lead. Yeah, that's so Canadian. <laughs> that's the new NRA slogan that I. I sat on a plane once with a guy who was pissed because he was going on a trip and he didn't feel safe without his gun. And instead of being confrontational, I thought I'd try to unpack it. And I was like, "What are you so afraid of?" And he's like, well, "People, you'll, you'll get people will attack you, or you know, people will home invade you." And I'm, I was thinking, what statistics are you looking at? in terms of home invasions, because I'm pretty sure that home invasions almost never happen. Well, it depends on where you are. Certainly where we live, they don't. Mm-hmm. Like we, they don't. And the look, I, this is not the cast to get into big political talk, but if you don't have guns in your community because they're against the law, then it's really hard to have a gun. And those that do have them illegally, they're not using them to go and just shoot random people on the street. Mm-hmm. You know, they're used in the guns and gangs trade and they kind of keep those to themselves. They shoot each other. We live in a, in a city of a million plus people and we have what, 30 murders a year. So you never talk like this till you watched The Wire. The Wire changed everything for me, including my middle name, which is now McNulty. <laughs> McNulty Omar. Dan, I've got a story for you this week, um, and I'm taking you once again back to the South. I'd prefer if you refer to me by my middle names from now on. No, I'm not. McNulty Omar. No, you can can ask your wife to do that when you're making love, but I'm not doing it. Okay, go on. Tell yourself a story. Oh, you bitter boy. And you're drinking out of a mason jar. We're going to Missouri. Missouri, home of the, um, the arch there. Yes, the St. Louis Arch, which I've been up. What? You can go inside it? Yeah, there's an elevator. Oh. Yeah, my parents stopped once to visit it, and we went up in the elevator that I guess goes... Is it like um, Willy Wonka, and it, it goes sideways, like as it goes up, and then eventually you're upside down, and you come down? No, but it goes in kind of a curve. Anyway, we're going to St. Louis. St. Louis, where the uh, the blues are prevalent, and so is barbecue. I've been there many times. I've never been. Oh, really, you have, eh? Yeah, I was there two years ago. Tonight, my friend, I'm going to tell you another haunted house story. And I didn't mean to. I'm meaning to branch out. But when I stumbled across this one, it was the history of it was so interesting to me. And this family is such an unfortunate, cursed family that I had to write this particular script. You love love telling these types of stories. I love ghost stories and I love haunted houses. I will admit it. I'm the first one to admit it. I promise, though, dear listener, that after this, I'll take a break from the haunted house story and try to find other... Uh, other. I don't think anyone's complaining or worried about it. 
your last story had nothing to do with a haunted house. No, I know, but I, I do a lot of haunted houses. So this is going to be the last one for a while. I'm going to tell you tonight the story of the Lemp family mansion. Lemp. So just take the word hemp and replace it with an L. Gotcha. Lemp. So I told you we're in St. Louis, Missouri. It's 1838. A gentleman named Adam Lemp closed his very unsuccessful restaurant and brewery in Germany. And he left to seek his fortunes and, you know, better opportunities in the new golden world of America. Sorry, when when is this? 1838. Okay. It's way back there. Mm Mm-hmm. This was like frontier land at this yeah, point. Yeah, oh yeah, he's, he's, you know, he's one of the first wave. He had left behind his wife, all of his children, and this is my favorite part, and substantial debt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a really good reason to leave. So he's getting out of Germany, and he's off to a brand new start in America. Now, there were a huge amount of immigrants from Germany at that time. And the majority of them actually relocated to America's Midwest in an area that is known as the German Triangle, which I did not know. I did not know. And that is formed by Milwaukee, St. Louis, or St. Louis, and Cincinnati. And in that area, they established very robust, very German-centric communities. And at one point, these are just interesting facts. I know you love history, so you'll like this. Germans replaced the British as the most prominent ethnic group in the U.S. Yes, and that posed a little bit of a dilemma in those first two world wars. Of course, yeah. They were worried about German sympathies. Where, where? Sorry, American German sympathies, and where did they actually lie? Mm-hmm. Didn't 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 put them in intern camps, though, did they? No, they didn't. No, because they they there were too many industrial holdings. Right between eighteen thirty and nineteen hundred. Five million Germans immigrated to the United States and to Canada. Wow. Five million. And if you go, we were talking 1830s, 1900s, so the population wasn't huge back then. So that is a very substantial wave of people all coming from one country. So when Adam Lemp arrived in the New World, he immediately began to work as a grocer and a brewer. Lemp had been trained in how to make beer way back in Germany. He was very good at it. And so he started a brewery. And at that facility, he produced both beer and vinegar. Okay. So very handy. You could have a drink and salad dressing. You want, you want to hear something interesting? Sure. I know you're not a beer drinker, but I, I, I think this is a weird little story. The, another German family immigrated to initially to uh, Prescott, Ontario, which is, sits on the St. Lawrence River which is the major river that was used for exploration of North America, at least initially, Samuel de Champlain, Jacques Cartier, all that. Anyway, this guy moved, uh, he was a beer maker from Germany, and he set up his beer company uh, initially in Prescott, then he moved down to the States, and that beer company became uh, the Budweiser Beer Company. Oh, okay, of course. What's interesting is if you go to Europe, there is a Budweiser that is not called Budweiser, like it, it's not the same beer. And if you drink that beer here, it's not called Budweiser. It's called Czechvar. And I guess they were che- a Czech family maybe. Okay. And it, uh, so it, yeah. So it, it's really, there was a big lawsuit and stuff like that to try and prevent one or the other calling their beer Budweiser. And I've taken you down a path that you probably didn't want me to take you down. 
That's all right. It's fascinating history. So back to Lamp. <laughs> that was very kind of you. Because as I was telling that story, actually, that's not that interesting. Oh, well. Beer and vinegar. He made beer and vinegar. Okay. So in 1840, he decided he would focus entirely on beer. And so he dropped the vinegar. Right. And also abandoned his grocery business. So he was just a brewer. Cool. And shortly after that, he married his third wife, a woman named Louise Bauer. So when I said he left his wife and kids in Germany, he, he left, left his, his wife and kids yeah. in Germany. It was done. Did they know this? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. When they got the wedding invitation. Like it's not like it's a, not a digital era. How would they know? I love did they know this. He called his enterprise the Western Brewery. He clearly wasn't a very inventive man. And he sold the beer in a pub that was actually attached to the factory itself. Interesting fact, he was the first brewer to produce lager in that area. Mm -hmm. Now, lager is a beer that is notoriously lighter than English ale. And Germans refer to it as liquid bread. In Germany and in German, lager actually means to store. And lager is a beer that must be stored in order for it to age properly. So lager means just to store. He is one of the first brewers to produce German lager, actually, in the United States. So he's mm. very well known for this. Well, it was a extremely successful undertaking for him. And the family became very wealthy very quickly. In 1848, William, which was Adam's son by his second wife in Germany, arrived in America and began to work with his father. So he didn't completely abandon his family in Germany. His son came over. William and worked side by side with his father. In 1855, Adam Lemp purchased a piece of land situated over a natural cave system on what is now Cherokee Street in St. Louis. This is so cool though. There was tons and tons of caves under St. Louis. They're still there. Oh. And these caves proved to be the ideal environment in which to age lager because the temperature was perfect. They're yeah. cool, dry, subterranean caverns. And constant. Yes, exactly. They fluctuate, yeah. The temperature doesn't waver. Very soon, because of the success of the business, the Lemps were one of the most prominent families in the St. Louis area. Now, Adam, the founder and father, died in 1862. And at that time, the business was passed to his son and grandson. And they continued to expand the business. And they changed the name to William J. Lemp and Company. So it was no longer Western Brewery. Okay. In 1864, the entire brewing operation under the Lemp banner was moved to Cherokee Street, which at that time was a very prosperous German neighborhood. It is where the most successful Germans would live. William and his son, Julia, built a formidable mansion nearby to house the couple and their eight children. So they were very productive married couple. By the end of the century, that century, the 19th century, Lemp was a major player in the U.S. beer trade. He was a force to be reckoned with. He, it was, Lemp Beer was the dominant beer company in St. Louis. Mm. And it was known for a particular lager called Falstaff. And it was indeed named after the famous Shakespearean character, Falstaff, which we know well. Uh, yes, from uh, Romeo and Juliet. That's the guy that kills Hamlet. 
Which, you know what, I, you, you're joking, but I actually couldn't tell you which... Tempest. Richard is... No, no, it's Richard III or something. See, I don't know. I just know Falstaff is a Shakespearean character. And I and I was in a Shakespearean theater company. Shame on me. Falstaff is from one of the plays about one of the kings, like Henry IV or one of those. I, I'm i not a Shakespeare person because I don't enjoy it. You're more, you're more into Moliere. But Falstaff, I can tell you, is a comic servant character. He's a robust beer-drinking character in Shakespeare. Oh, he's in one of the Henrys. You're right. It's he a Henry, Henry isn't Henrys. it? Yeah. I'm going to look it up. Henry the Fourth, part one or something. Sir John Falstaff is a fictional character who appears in three plays by William Shakespeare. And those would be, oh, three, eh? Okay, so he's in uh, Henry the Fourth, part one and two. I got one of them right. And then also in Henry the Fifth. Okay, so he's in the Henrys. Okay, I was right. It just took me a while to get there. And he's the comic relief. He's oh, the and he's f- also in The Merry Wives of Windsor. Oh, okay. And Big Trouble in Little China. Stop, stop. You promised we would be done with that movie, and you lied. You lied. Season one, callback, baby. Boom. Kurt Russell. Brr, brr. The mayor of Idiotville, Dan Lajoie. I'm a regular Falstaff. Okay, so the beer is called Falstaff, which is lovely because Falstaff was a man who loved to drink and he loved good time. He was a big, jovial man. Very ribald, yes. Yes. William, I'm going to now make a note. William's daughter, Hilda, married Gustav Pabst. Am I saying yes. it right? Yes. Yes. And it's those Pabst. Just think drunk people say it and Pabst. Pabst. Hey, pass me another Pabst. You can, you, you, there's no real wrong way to say Pabst. Hey, hey, buddy, you got any perps on on uh, the tap line tonight? So she married a Pabst, and so beer married beer. William's son, Frederick, died of a heart attack in 1901, and he was only 28 years old. This is the grandson of the original owner? Yes. William was devastated. Grief crippled him. He would walk to work in secret using the tunnels and caves that connected the house to the brewery. Hmm. And in 1904, his dear friend, Frederick Pabst, which was father to his son-in-law, died. And that really hit him hard one month later, unable to cope with the grief. William calmly left the breakfast table, walked up to his bedroom, and killed himself. Oh. So this guy, this guy, they were friends before he, his daughter married yes. that guy's son. Yes, and all the, all the beer families knew each other. So his son dies, his best friend, or a very good friend of his dies, and he's distraught, and he yeah. goes and kills himself. And two years later, his wife, Julia, dies of cancer in the same bedroom in the same bed. Mm. His oldest son, Billy, also a William, assumed responsibility for the company, and he was married to a very well-known socialite named Lillian. Now, Billy loved the good life. And he was notorious for throwing extravagant parties. I love this. He also built a movie theater, a bowling alley, and a swimming pool in the caves under the home. Cool. Like a whole movie theater. Cool. And a bowling alley. I love the bowling alley. That makes me think of um, There Will Be Blood. I want to see the, the, the movie theater. I wish it was still there. Oh, it's not? No. Oh. No. But that's like so extravagant. Mm-hmm. I bet everybody, though, would get a blanket because caves are cold. Yeah. Well, they they uh, can be damp, eh? Yeah. I bet when you went to the concession stand, they'd be like, we're not giving you ice. You don't need it. 
Well, they can also be warm, though, right? If there's a thermal spring or whatever in there. All right. So Lillian got tired of Billy's behavior because he was also a bit of a womanizer. And in 1909, she sued him for divorce. Mm -hmm. She won and she was granted custody of their child. Wow. That's not a common thing at that time. No, it was not. But when you have money, you can get anything done, right? Billy remarried in 1915. In 1910, I should note, his youngest sister, Elsa, had married Thomas Wright, who ran a brass and metal company. They divorced in 1919 and then got back together in 1920. And they were notorious for their loud arguments and constant bickering. Everybody knew that they just fought all the time. In 1920, she was found shot to death in her bed. Oh. And her husband, Thomas, insisted that it was suicide. Now, remember, this is Billy's sister, Elsa. Many people believe that he actually did it. Well, of course. Their behavior together pointed in that direction entirely. Well, that, and going back to what we were talking about earlier, that is what, like, most deaths and murders, it's someone you... A crime of passion. It's usually, I was going to say, it's like family thing it's the husband yeah oh yeah who's murdering his wife or murdering the children yep absolutely guys are shit bags they are in 1920 the 18th amendment banned alcohol in the united states and this began the period notorious period we know as prohibition before that time beer production had become the sixth largest industry in the united states think about that Beer production, your sixth largest industry. Yeah. So, obviously, the Lemp family fortunes took a sudden and horrible turn. The company attempted to pivot, but it was unsuccessful. Pivot to what? To producing other things. Other did other fermented products. Interesting. And, and they didn't they didn't try to bootleg? Not that I know of. No. Yeah, I mean not not some didn't, right? So, that's yeah. Yeah, and they were trying to produce other, other, you know, go back to vinegar, I assume, things like that. But mm-hmm. it just didn't happen. In 1922, the Lemp Brewery was abruptly closed and sold at auction to the International Shoe Company for eight cents on the dollar. That, And now you know the rest of the story, how the infamous Beer Shoe came to be. Sounds like a person's nickname. Oh, here comes Beer Shoe. <laughs> hey, you guys. Anybody got a nickel? Okay. The Falstaff name at that time was also sold and to a different company, which operated it until 1990. Was it a uh, piano tar company? No. So Falstaff beer was still made until 1990. Oh, it really was. Do you know? Uh, yeah. I've never heard of it. Okay. From 1922 to 1992, the former brewery, which was a very large, big establishment. It was a very large building, series of buildings was used as a warehouse for the shoe company. I actually saw pictures of it where it says that on the side. All that the Lemp family retained was the house, the original home. Now, Billy, at this time, had been exhibiting odd behavior and deepening depression. And in 1922, he left the breakfast table, went to his office, and shot himself. Right. In 1929, Billy's brother Charles took up residence in the mansion and remained there for 20 years. He was a very reclusive. Nobody really knew that much about him, but he was a notorious germaphobe and he always wore gloves to avoid contact with bacteria. Mm-hmm. And he was also known to suffer from severe depression. In May 1949, he took his own life in the house. 
Jeez. After killing his dog. After killing his what? His dog. A lot of people take their pets with them when they commit suicide. Yeah. So he killed his dog and took his own life. Now, he had also been suffering from bone cancer and had severe arthritis. Okay. He left a note that stated very plainly that this he was solely to blame for this final act. He also left detailed instructions that his body was not to be washed, changed, or clothed. He asked to be cremated and buried at his farm, which was in another location. You know what? Nobody knows where the farm was. It's not that I didn't research. It's that nobody knows where his farm was. The deed has been lost. Family secret. Because apparently his his son got the ashes to the farm and buried them, but nobody knows where that was. Interesting. So it was an escape. Yeah. Place. Now here is the act that will seal the deal in terms of making this a haunted property. You ready? Mm-hmm. The home after that was subsequently bought by the state of Missouri and loaned out to the Marion Hospital, which used it to house patients. What kind of patients, though? Medical patients. Okay, so not like an asylum. No, but they're hurting. Yeah, lots of death. Lots more death. The house was eventually sold by the state of Missouri in 1950, and at that time it was converted into a boarding house. And the area in which it was situated, which at one time had been known as Millionaire's Hill, was in terrible decline and housing was needed. So all of the old mansions in that area were converted into boarding houses. It was not an unusual thing. It operated as a boarding house right up until the 70s. Really? And in 1975, the property was purchased by a gentleman named Dick Pointer and converted into a restaurant and an inn. I just giggled like a little boy. Why? When you said that guy's name. Dick Pointer. Yeah. What's the way you say? If you say Dick Pointer, but if you say Dick Pointer, it's where you put the emphasis, right? Yeah. So you can tell already three suicides in a house. Now, a lot of people say that the story well, of maybe the, a murder. The story of the Lemp family, just as a story, is one of severe depression. Obviously, depression ran through that family. Yes. You don't get three suicides in, in one family that close together. It's just, there's obviously some kind of um, psychology to be looked at, right? Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about spooky times? No. Let's go back to Falstaff. <laughs> the beer. Yes. I, I'm, I'm anxious to know what, it's, and what, what is it now? What? The house. The house. Imagine. It's a restaurant and a bed and breakfast. And so it still is. Yeah. Yeah. You can stay there. I'm going to tell you all about it. Yeah, and I'm going to totally stay there. Ooh. Anyway, I will tell you uh, more about what it does now. Okay, we've got a house that has a horrible history. Mm-hmm. It's a horrible history. Um, and there are other things that are said to have occurred there that no one can verify. But other people may have died. Servants may have died. We're not sure. There's even rumors that in the caves underneath the house, that particular house and other properties in the area, that satanic rituals occurred. Why? Why did they say that? Well, caves, dark caves, under houses. They all connect the houses together, right? I mean, that's how legends are born. Okay. Okay, so in terms of this particular house, the Lamp family house, there are a ton of ghosts that live there. During the 1975 renovations, when they were getting ready to reopen as a, uh, a restaurant first and then an inn, workers who were working on the property were plagued by apparitions. Strange noises, objects that they would place in a certain spot would vanish. And 
just tons of unsettling sensations. The feeling that someone is watching you, the feeling that cold air is just brushed against your cheek, all of those mm-hmm. classic sensations. It was so profound that many of the laborers actually refused to work at the site. They were like, fuck this. I don't need money this badly. Really? Yeah. Well, that's actually interesting because you would think that they would be teasing each other. But the fact that guys actually didn't want to go and, and, and in an era that's not overly superstitious. But it's Missouri. It's St. Louis. Okay. You know, there's probably a bit. They probably have their toe in the superstition lake more than like. Is that a Baptist area? I don't think so. Might be, might be. It's isn't it part of like the uh, the Bible, Bible Belt? Belt? I don't know what the Bible Belt is in terms of denomination. I think it's like Baptists and look at you type 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 type. Uh, yeah, uh, it would be like yeah, part of it. The, at least the south east corner of the state looks like it's part of the Bible Belt. Okay, according to this heat map I'm looking at. Okay. Back to the story. So eventually the renovations were complete. Once the restaurant was opened, staff immediately began to see terrifying apparitions appear and abruptly vanish. They would look down the hallway and see a figure standing in a doorway. The figure would turn and disappear. They would look out the window and see a face reflected in the window over their shoulder. Oh. Yeah, stuff like that. They would go into the washrooms and I love this one. The door would suddenly fly open. If I was a ghost, I would do that because that's that's <laughs> harmless, but also extremely mean. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like something I would have done twenty five years ago, drunk at a wedding. Yeah, yank the washroom door open and run away giggling. Mm-hmm. And this was unsettling for them. They heard footsteps on the stairways. They heard the normal things that we associate with a paranormal manifestation. Doors would lock and unlock themselves. Lights all over the building would flicker on and off. And I love this. I always love this one because it's just, I love it because it's sound. Notes on the piano would suddenly be struck, but there would be nobody Mm. there. And this one, this one's really cinematic. Candles would suddenly burst into flame. They would light of their own volition. That makes me think of uh, Margot's episode. Yeah, or Phantom of the Opera. The candles just burst into flame? Well, they did in the show. They did in the show. Now, in the house, the stairway, the attic, and the basement are paranormal hotspots. So, the stairs, the extreme top, and the extreme bottom. Now, the basement is the most famous area of all, and also the most dangerous. And the staff, and people who are familiar with it, actually call it the Gates of Hell. Mm. I should note that the basement obviously, is how the caverns beneath the home were accessed at one time. By the way, those are now sealed up, those uh, access points. Oh, no. I know, right? Mm. Uh, I know, I was kind of bummed when I heard that. What does that. the restaurant do down there? What? Like, is it a storage area for the restaurant? Like, what? It, what it, yeah, yeah, it's just used for storage. Okay. Now, you're going to like this. There is a presence in the attic that people call the monkey face boy. I know. <laughs> Legend has it that this entity is, in fact, the ghost of William Jr.'s illegitimate son, Billy, who had been born with Down syndrome. Oh. And he had spent his entire life locked in the attic because of the embarrassment of it. The legend states that the mother of the child was, in fact, a prostitute who suffered from several diseases. Thus, he was born with these deformities. Tons of people have seen his face peering down from the third floor windows. 
and paranormal investigators who have gone into the site to try to figure out what's going on have left toys for him. And what they do is they'll put the toy down and then draw a circle of chalk around the toy. They come back and indeed the toys have been moved by the spirit from one location to another. Hmm. Now, many folks who have seen the spirit of Monkey Face Boy, I hate saying that, but that's what they call him. We'll just call him the boy. The boy. Have noted that his right foot was badly deformed and that he walked with a very pronounced limp. And a number of people who've seen the apparition, who had no contact with each other and had not read anything about it, all reported that he walked with a limp. They all saw the same apparition. That, 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 this is sad. This this actually does bring back memories of your the, the second asylum that you covered that was for children. Yeah. It's so sad. And unfortunately, back in the day, um, people were ashamed that they had children. Oh, of course, with right? deformities yeah. and Down syndrome, right? So, yeah. Now, there are people who believe that the Spectre is not, in fact, William Jr.'s illegitimate son, but instead a young ward of the state who died on the property when it was being used as a hospital. Right. So there's a camp that says, hey, wait a minute. No, 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 no. There's no evidence pointing to this. This is actually a kid who died of some affliction. That could just be another rumor. Right. That he had this uh, this child, yeah. Here's an interesting fact. The downstairs bathroom, I love this, was the home to St. Louis's first freestanding shower. What? Yeah, the first shower that you could stand in that was, you know, that was the hand shower. It was in, in the house. You mean, so it had piping. You mean yeah. and it was piping in water. That was the first one ever in St. Louis. In St. Louis, yep. So I bet people came from far and wide to shower. Now, the thing about this particular bathroom, it's the downstairs bathroom, is that it's also home to a spirit that peers over the top of a stall while you're using it. <laughs> and it's most often, of course, women. The, the belief is that it's Billy, the womanizer. So he wants to get, you know, a little view of these women while they're showering and peers up. And a, a lot of women have run out screaming, who was in my room? Someone was in my room. And there was no one there. And they believe that it is Billy just, you know, up to no good. In uh, a room in the current inn that was once William Sr.'s room, there are numerous reports of footsteps running up the stairs and kicking the door. So you'll be in the room sleeping and you'll hear footsteps thundering up the stairs against the door. Yeah, that's not unsettling. I just go right back to sleep. Mm. And there's also a mirror in the William Lemp suite where many have glimpsed the outline of a partial face. That's the suite I'm talking about, William Sr.'s room. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the mirror is very famous. People go there and peer into it and a lot of paranormal investigators have, have spent time with that mirror. Now, as you can appreciate, because this is listed as one of the top haunted houses in North America, tons of paranormal investigation teams have gone through this particular place. Okay. There's one a paranormal investigator in the community named um, Betsy is her first name. Uh, and she goes there all the time and she conducts tours on Mondays when the uh, restaurant's not open. So she's okay. a psychic and she'll take you through. And she claims... That in the house, there are nine very distinct entities. And she says that one of these is a child named Zeke. And most people believe that Zeke is, in fact, the monkey face boy. She also has said that she's aware of the Lemp's dog, Serva, is also there. So the dog that was killed. Zeke, when contacted by mediums, and many have done this, claims that his death was the result of being, and I quote, pushed. 
By who? His father just had enough. Oh. I don't know. I don't know, but stop calling him the monkey face boy. I can't, okay, but that's what they call him. All the articles call him that. I didn't start. I didn't start the fire. All right, Billy Joel. <laughs> what an awful song. In 1983, two radio hosts, of course, held a Halloween broadcast from the home, and during the course of the program, they asked, "Is anyone with us?" And a ghostly voice was heard very clearly through the microphone, simply stating, "I am Zeke." Oh, has that been like, do, is there a recording of that still? Yes. <gasps> yeah. Oh, yeah. Can we play that for listeners? I don't have it. Buy it. I don't know where I would get it. I looked, but um, apparently the recording still exists. Okay. So it's not online, but it still exists. It's somewhere. Yeah. I couldn't find it online. Two of the ghosts in the property are actually from the time. Now this is all from this paranormal investigator, Betsy, who is very centered on the house. Two of the spirits are actually from the time when the property operated as a boarding house. There is the spirit of a young girl who occupied the house during the 50s, and her name is Elizabeth. Why is it always Elizabeth? It's a very common name. Like, why whenever there's a haunted Victorian doll, it's called Elizabeth? Because there is a rule book in the afterlife, and uh, rule 37, if you're a female ghost, you have a choice of like four names. Yeah. Victoria, Elizabeth, Sarah, Denise. Sarah. Oh, that's right. There's five. Sarah and and Debbie. Can you imagine the ghost Debbie? I, I am Debbie, the wailing girl. <laughs> yeah, okay. We might have Debbie listeners, and, and now you've pissed them off, and they're going to haunt you. So the ghost Elizabeth, Dan, they say she died on the third floor of the home, what I told you was the attic, in a very violent manner. The violent manner, though, is not specified. Oh, I should note that when it was a boarding house, no one lived on the third floor. It was only used for storage. Many people have seen this spirit that Betsy calls Elizabeth. She seems to be very drawn to male energy, and she will try to get the attention of male visitors to the property. And they very definitely can feel her presence. She will often squeeze the hand of unsuspecting visitors. Uh, And if you try to interact with her, I wonder what happens. There was no report of interaction. Just out. Yeah, well, and, and that's, I think, a common, but I think that's a common thing, right? Yeah. They'll try to, it's a one-way form of communication. I don't think you can have a conversation with ghosts. Well, the paranormals do. Right. I could have gone for hours putting in all the information that the paranormals said that they've gotten from these ghosts, but I'm not putting it in. If people want to go and find that, they can find it themselves. Sometimes I find it unbelievably because it's so colloquial. This is like a do-it-yourself podcast. We're going to give you just a few bits of information. You go and find out, good listener. If you ever heard of Netscape, go uh, go search it up. You asshole. The reason I didn't put it in is because one paranormal investigator has like eight pages of conversation with Elizabeth where Elizabeth said she was this and, the da, 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 da. and then another paranormal investigator says that they contact Elizabeth and she lived in the 1800s. She was, you know, a, a, a servant. It's... I could go... Contradictory. Right. I'm not doing my doctoral thesis. I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you, sweet Riley. You're an awful person. Well, I am, and that's part of it. Children and adults who lived in the area also reported seeing what a lot of people call the lady in white. Mm -hmm. And you can guess why. She's a lady, and she's in white. She would stare at them from a window in the house. And this is the interesting part. You don't often come across this. The windows she appears at are random. 
So it's not always the same window. She'll appear at any number of windows in the house. And that's unusual. Usually when there's a ghost in a, in a, in a particular location, they stick to that location. There's muscle memory there, right? Well, that's what I mean by the one-way thing. Often you hear these stories where they're kind of in a, a, a repeating track. Mm-hmm. Did I tell you the story that that's my mom thinks she saw a ghost? No. When I, I think it might've been when I was just born or when my, either my brother and sister were, were babies. She woke up in her room and there was a woman in white standing at the, the foot of her bed. Oh. And my mom will correct me again because I'm relaying an old story that I'll probably get wrong. But uh, the way my mom described it was she wasn't afraid. It was this odd experience. And then she just sort of vanished. Maybe it was a spiritual caretaker. Maybe. A lot of people report the uh, images of spiritual caretakers. And then, of course, people call these angels. But I prefer right. the term spiritual caretaker, that somebody or something spiritual is watching over you. Like a Mr. Gordy. Yeah, but without the shiny shoes. Yeah. Now, the woman in white at the lamp house, most people believe that that's Julia. She was the mother of eight children. and Because witnesses have reported seeing this entity as far back as the 1930s. So they think it might be good old Julia. Now I'm going to give you what I call odds and ends. These are just things that people have seen at the lamp house and are seen to this day because it's open to the public and people go there all the time. There are videos out there and you'll see them if you look of ghostly orbs floating up and down the stairs. They're cool looking actually. They're just disembodied lights. There's also the ghost of an old man with a beard and he appears sitting in a room by a window. People also hear the sound of a dog on the stairway running up and down the stairs. So this is probably the dog that was killed. Right. And I love this to balance that. People have also felt a ghostly cat winding around their ankles. Remember the podcast you just did with that cat? I loved that cat. We only did nine episodes, me and that cat. No, fuck. Uh, you just did. You did an episode recently where they drew, they drew the cat. It was a painting or something of a cat. Remember? And you said, look at it. Oh, it's supposed to be yeah. a black demon the, the, cat. It, it, sorry, sorry. That was the Hellfire Club. Yes. I thought you meant I did a podcast with a cat. Like as the and You made me look at the picture of the cat. It just looked really sad. <laughs> yeah, I know. A big, sad, fat cat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was the Hellfire Club in Dublin. Okay. A foul odor <laughs> is often smelled in the notorious attic area, the attic area where people believe Elizabeth lost her life. Mm-hmm. And in the Gates of Hell area, which we just call the basement, psychics have sensed an angry presence pacing back and forth in front of the mouths of the sealed tunnels. Mm. Mm. So that has led people to believe that something untoward went on in those tunnels. Yeah, and those are the tunnels that went sort of under the street towards the factory, right? Yeah, and connected the caves. There's a massive natural cave system down there. It's still down there. All right, I'm going to wrap this up, Dan. In 1980, Life magazine included this house in its list of the nine most haunted houses in America. So, of course, everybody went crazy over the Lamp Mansion and people flocked to it. Currently, it houses a dinner theater, a bed and breakfast, and a restaurant. There are five rooms available to guests to stay in. And I love this part. You can still see a tall red brick tower near Cherokee Street with big white letters that spell out LAMP. Neat. So that is the story of the notorious LAMP family, the multiple suicides, and the charged, psychically charged LAMP house, which still remains on many lists as one of the most haunted locations that you can visit on this continent. Ta-da!
Well, what a neat place. There's a a real allure to haunted homes, isn't there? I remember as a kid, uh, we moved from, well, the home where my mom would have seen that apparition, if it was indeed that, to another home that was more on the outskirts of the city that we live in. And there was an old barn there that seemed deserted, but filled with stuff. I shit you not, Riley, I could not step even a foot inside that barn because we were convinced it was haunted. There was an old bathtub right outside the barn that was filled with what looked like blood. Oh God. It was red. Old rusty water. Yeah. Right. For us as, you know, nine, 10, 11 year old kids, that was like a bloodbath, right? And there was just, but there was a, a an eerie, dark, foreboding. It's just a freaking barn. Why would a barn be that scary? Well, you know, sometimes I poo-poo, but I've got to tell you, there are places that I'm sure both of us have been to that have a palpable, uneasy feeling about them. You're just, you're a bit like, no, I don't want to go in there or I don't want to experience this place. And that I've experienced. So I don't know what that means, but there you have it. Well, I, I mean, again, we've talked to Ed, ad nauseum about this, but how buildings have memories maybe, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. The energy is sort of trapped in that space. I would love, oh man, I wish this pandemic could wrap up and sometime soon because I'd love to go visit these places. Well, we're going, we're definitely going to Trans-Allegheny that I've said from the beginning and that's going to happen. We could do, we could do like a special episode where we visit some of the locations that we've talked about and do little snippets from them. I would also love to do like a new episode in a location like at that actual oh, yeah. location. We'll do, well, of course. And we could take the temperature. We could take the temperature in the room. And we'll talk to people there, for sure. And have infrared cameras. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to um, to say before we leave this tale behind is I found the tale of the Lemp family experiencing such success and because of prohibition being completely wiped out, fascinating. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, and, and I didn't realize that this particular part of the world and part of North America was so focused on one product, and that is beer. Well, it was very popular, wasn't it? And I mean, most people drank. Especially the Germans. Which led to the whole, I mean, the temperance movement, right? Women were tired mm-hmm. of getting beat up. And that was part of the motivation to, to prohibit uh, well, alcohol. Well, the Germans and the British, I find the British drinking in like a pub is part of everyday life. Like the French drink wine with their meals and the Italian drink wine with their meals. But like the British people, like when I go to London, everybody hits the pub after work. Well, have you been to Britain and watched TV there? There's not much to watch on television. So they would go to the pub to, that's where you went and socialized. I'm half, I'm half joking. Actually, the BBC produces some pretty awesome stuff. No. It, but after it, work, you go to the pub to meet your friends. But there, it goes even further back than that. I, I feel like we've mentioned this before, but uh, drinking alcohol was the safest drink you could drink for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. To, water was not a viable source of sustenance because it was often contaminated. Mm-hmm. So to drink, for, for men to drink was safer. So people, that it was a staple in the diets of the Irish and, you know, the English and Scots and Welsh and French and Germans. And I'm just saying to this day, I find that those cultures, nah, never mind. But I just, well, no, but what I'm, I'm leading to what you're saying. In I'm Ottawa, if you. you drive through Ottawa at 5.30 and do a tour of the pubs, you're not going to see very much going no. on. If you drive through London at 5.30... There's so many people in the pubs, they're on the street drinking. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm building to what you're saying. I think the roots to that are historic. Of course. And it became a social, the place where you went. It was the place that you went to be 
with your friends and your neighbors. And it has continued. Those traditions, the culture has continued to today. And it's not like that here. No, but that's partly maybe to who uh, immigrated here. Yeah, when I was reading about the Germans, the Germans brought a beer culture with them. Beer gardens and festivities around beer. And they would drink throughout the day, which also shocked North Americans, apparently. And there are parts of Canada that are like that, like uh, Kitchener-Waterloo, which is home to the world-famous Waterloo University. used to be Berlin, Ontario, heavy German population, and they have their Oktoberfest and big beer festivals, and that culture exists there, maybe more so in other places. Now, don't you wish you could have a Falstaff beer? Yes. You've made me thirsty. Well, it's just kind of cool. I love, and I love they, they chose that name. It's actually a really good name because he was a man who enjoyed spirits. And you would know because you read all of his plays. You know, it, the way they teach Shakespeare in high school it, back in my day, it was just unforgivable because they made us read of all the Shakespeare plays, of all the Shakespeare plays they could get you to read in grade 11. They chose Henry the right. Fourth, Part the, the One. Fourth, Part One and Two. Oh, just part the, one? The driest, most political, like, no, they couldn't have chosen The Tempest or something really fun, you know, Much Ado About Nothing. There's tons of fun, much more accessible. No, they chose... Twelfth Night. Yeah, they chose Henry the Fourth Part One. And then we all walked away going, I just never want to read Shakespeare again as long as I live. Well, the other problem too with it is that it was often read to us. We had to read it like a book. Yeah. And it's not done that way for the most part now. It's It's taught as a script and kids are performing and designing and directing and... And having fun with the scripts, whether it's Shakespeare or something else, that part of the curriculum is is much more engaging now. Do you know when I went to university, I'll tell you one more story and then we'll let these people go. Uh, the year that I had to take Shakespeare, because it's a prerequisite for a lit degree, we had a substitute teacher. The person who regularly taught Shakespeare was not there. And this particular lady, and I can't remember her name, when we first went in to learn Shakespeare, had it, you know those TVs that we all had, they had back in our day on the metal stands and there was a TV on top and you were all excited because you knew you were going to, yes. you, you'd go in and be like, ooh, we're going to watch TV. She had a VCR and when we went in, she pushed play and it was The Young and the Restless. We, she said, I want you to watch this. And we watched like five minutes of it. And it was a very heated exchange between Victor Newman and somebody, whatever. Anyway, when she stopped it, she said... I want you to understand that the Shakespeare plays, the majority of what we're going to read in this classroom is like that. These are elevated stories. These are the soap operas of their day. These are the common, big, broad tales that just everybody would gather and watch. Don't be intimidated by them because they're just like this. You know, just don't let them scare you because they're not scary. They're just this. This is what they are. And I thought, what a great way to just lay out the rug and yeah the course was brutal though oh my god we had to read so much i almost died we had to read everything everything yeah i had a, a similar experience with marty meriden who was the artistic director of the national arts center mm -hmm. who i did a master class with and she that was one of the things she said look i've been she was an ingenue at the stratford festival and very accomplished and acclaimed actress uh, who worked a lot with Shakespeare's texts. And she said the same thing. She goes, there's a lot of stuff in here I don't understand, mm -hmm. you know, and I've asked experts, what does this mean? And no one knows. Yeah, people get too caught up in the poetry and understanding the poetry and lose sight of the beauty and lyricness of the words and, and the powerful, ageless stories that he told. And the plots are just soap operas. They're just the young and the restless. They're just crazy, big, crazy, improbable soap operas. They're like, you know, a special episode of Facts of Life where, you know, Tootie pretends she's a man. Oh, or, or, or like big time action flicks, like 
Titus Andronicus or Macbeth. They're yeah, they're blood and gore and exciting and yeah, yeah. and just big scenes, big big bloody scenes. So anyway, that's enough of that. Did you know that Hans Gruber is in several of Shakespeare's plays? Oh, I can't get away from him. Okay, that is the story of the lamp family mansion. And I promise, folks, I'm going to back away from the haunted houses for a little while and find something else to talk about. But I really like them. And I really like the history of what happens. That's where I get caught up. I get caught up in what brought us to this place where there is so much going on. So, Dan, that's my story. And that's all I got. Thank you, Riley. That was great. Folks, if you've enjoyed listening to The Weird, if you're a regular listener, please feel free to spread the word of The Weird all around uh, town. Buy a radio ad on your local uh, radio station. You know, tell people how much they are missing by not listening to our show. If you're in Bhutan, reach out to us. We're worried. We haven't heard from you in a long time. We realize that not many people are allowed into the kingdom of Bhutan. But we just send some sort of signal to let us know that you're okay. You know, this week was the first time I ever knew that Bhutan had an H in it. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was just B-U-T-A-N. No, it's B-H-U-T-A-N. Which makes it more exotic and mysterious. Yeah. Like me. Okay, Dan, thank you very much. Um, Let's go enjoy what remains of the autumn night. And folks, we're glad that you joined us for this journey. And uh, we'll see you next week for further adventures in the land of the weird. Good night, everybody. I've got Pax Blue Ribbon on my mind.